So, um, how many of you are blessed by the ladies this morning as they were singing and leading us in worship? Can we hear a little bit of an amen or a praise here? Amen. We want to thank you for your gift and service and the spirit that you bring into. You know, there's times I would just say that worship brings an atmosphere that you don't want to break the atmosphere of worship. And we get used to sometimes in our services of missing the moment. You know, I've had times when in worship, the Holy Spirit ministering to me so deeply um, that I couldn't help but feel like I wanted to just spend hours at the altar, spend time with the Lord and just let him soak it in. You know, when God wants to do something, please listen to me here. When God's speaking to you, he wants you to give him your undivided attention. And I know many of you already know that, but I want to provoke you with it. I want to provoke you to give an attention to God. I think that there's times when God knows He can get your ear, and He knows there's times when He can't. And when He can't get your ear, that's the time when you're probably going to hear silence. But God likes to speak to those who give an ear to Him. So I don't know if you set your heart. What I mean by your ear is is that your heart to be attentive to God with... uh, the sense of whatever's going on, I'm going to make sure I narrow that picture down to just focusing, focusing on what God is doing. So the worship is supposed to lead us to that. I believe the word um, also spoken is with that same design very simply. I'm looking forward to sharing this with you. It's called life-giving spirit. Last, time, last week I shared with you life-giving friends. I had a lot of you share with me particularly that message meant a lot to you. And I am grateful for that. I'm not wanting to hear it when it's not, but I definitely do want to hear it when it is. I want to know that it's reaching and touching your heart. And so we want to share that with you today. Amen. So the scripture that I have up there is Acts 3.19. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to actually have you turn to John chapter 3, verse 19. I've actually had this part of my sermon confirmed at least three times today. The first song confirmed it and two other prayers this morning did. So I feel like I'm going in the right direction. Amen. John chapter 3, verse 19 through 20. I'm going to read this verse and then I want to pray. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Father, this is your word. Lord, your word is precious to us. And God, you have a congregation of people diverse in so many different ways. Lord, the level of interest and desire of of each of our hearts are different when it comes to your word. But God, I want to pray today, Lord, that you would begin to move us toward what is supposed to be the unity of the Spirit. Draw us, Lord, into that place where the Holy Spirit can have preeminence among us. God, we want to pray that yesterday will be yesterday and today will be a new day. Lord, would you feed us new manna today, God? Give us, Lord, what you want for us to hear. Open our ears to hear. And whatever the Holy Spirit is saying to every individual, Lord, whether they're in this place, Lord, or they're going to hear this over the internet or however they may, this message may reach any heart, I want to pray that, God, that you would just touch the lives of those who are listening. God, those who need this word today. Lord, we all need your word, God. We need the Holy Spirit to speak to us profoundly. 
Lord, we need a personal message of Jesus Christ. Lord, I love what you said to Peter. You said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And today, Lord, I only can pray, God, that you would give us that individually, Lord. Meet the heart cry that says, I want to hear from God. I want the Father to reveal to me today what it is that you want me to see. Father, I want that to be known. And Jesus, I pray that today, Lord, that you would deliver this message as profoundly and as real as it was last week and other weeks prior to. Lord, I am grateful for the touch of the Spirit of God upon the preacher as well as those who sing and lead us, Lord. Father, we thank you, Jesus. This word was not meant to just be heard. It was meant to be received. And it was meant, Lord, so that we could live it out. And we love you, Lord, for speaking your light and conviction into our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. So this word darkness that you read in this verse, it's a big word in the Bible. I actually put an exclamation point that. It's a big word in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. But you find this all over the Bible, that word darkness. And it's interesting that I start this sermon with a life-giving spirit dealing with darkness. Which is interesting because I was thinking for myself, I was like, how do we context darkness? What's the contextualization of common people in our day and an age, even outside of the Bible? But how do we generally look at darkness? And I would say probably most of us would define darkness in the idea of depression. We're talking about depression and that weight that comes on our minds, over our emotions, and even over our spirit, and we feel depression. Interestingly, though, the Bible doesn't seem to deal with that as its main context to the word darkness. But if we don't understand darkness, we're not going to understand how Jesus brings life. And so I was talking to you last week about life-giving friends the type of friends that come into our life and their purpose and the design is not so much to tell you and encourage you about you, but to bring the hope that you need, the hope that is most necessary. And we have life-giving friends because we have a life-giving Spirit of God. And that same life-giving Spirit of God indwells human hearts and human beings so that they can be the extension of that light in life. And I think it's a shame. It's a shame that we don't know from one another and we don't know from... Uh, A lot of people who name the name of God, we don't know what it's like to get life from them. And I think that might speak more and more about where they are with God. And so we come to in churches across this nation, and we're going to find many different categories of people within those churches. Some are saved, some are not saved. Some are going to heaven, some are not going to heaven. Some are right with God, and some are not right with God. But we're going to find a diversity of people who come to church. You're going to have a diversity of preachers as well to go along with that. I believe that part of the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit is something that we don't think of often, but I believe it's the destruction phase that God gives is a part of life. There's a destruction phase that I think if all of us that know something about God knows that He's brought us through a destruction phase. There's a, there's a piece of life that you've lived. Or there's sometimes, even in your own relationship with God, there's a destruction phase. And what we, what we don't want to paint is this idea that the Christian lives fully to his capacity or her capacity in God. You haven't reached the finality of the Christian life. 
you haven't gotten to the final mark of what it means to be completely holy. And so we have this piece of that God looks at us one way, but there's also this piece of life that Jesus is dealing with, and He's shedding parts of life that don't look like Him. And He's dealing with that on many different levels. Like I said last week, there's growing stages and phases for people. Some of us are going 55 miles an hour, and some of us are creeping at 5 miles an hour when it comes to growing with God. Because there's an inward work that God has to do in the life of a person. And the destruction phase is very important. I want to read to you a scripture in Jeremiah chapter 1 verses 9 through 10. The destruction phase, I think, is a big piece of this is prophecy. Listen to this prophecy. Then the Lord, go ahead and turn there. I better give you some time to do that. I don't want you to miss it. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 9 through 10. I've told you guys before, I said, you know, you can interrupt me anytime. If you need me to repeat something, let me, you know, just raise your hand and I will try and repeat it. I might ask you what you want from me because I'm not sure if you're raising your hand to get five, five things before or the one right in the moment, but I want you to do that. So if you didn't get the verse, let me know. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. Everybody there? Shout amen if you're there. Amen. Good. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out, to pull down, and to destroy, and to throw down, and to build, and to plant. I don't know if you noticed this, but when God was calling Jeremiah the prophet, He gave him two pieces to the whole work of being a prophet and actually carrying out the ways of God into the community and into the land that he was in the nation of Israel. And it was simply this. It was that he was to root out, he was to pull down, and he was to destroy. There's a portion of God's Word that's meant to do just this. You cannot read through these pages and not see the devastating work of God to bring nations and people where He wants them to be. And we must be faithful to make sure that we regard the whole counsel of God. And when He pulls down and He plucks up, He replants and He rebuilds. But something has to be destroyed. The old ground has to be fallowed out. And the whole way of doing things has to bring something to ruin in order to bring something new. See, we like to talk about the newness of the Gospel because we appreciate that piece. And we know it's so important and vital to life. But what I realize is, is that if we keep talking about the new with, without talking about the destructive work of God, we never actually get the new. There's no new without destroying the old. So we have to let the old life die. It has to go to the grave. The guy that lies, the guy that cheats, the person that has pride, the person who's always trying to get things to work out for their, in their own favor, all of that has to come under the work of the cross. You know, there's so much times when we have arguments and disputes, and I'll, I'll say that there's a peace that has to be in the destructive work of God. Not just because you have disputes, because some disputes are necessary. Please hear me on that. Some are so necessary. We need those disputes. But what we don't need is those that are author, authorized by our own selfishness and the intent to honor ourselves above everything else. 
But I think the disputes are this. The disputes that need to be really held in honor are the ones that belong to God. Where we begin to move into the area. of. So we have this destruction phase. Jeremiah is introducing it. When we talk about light and darkness, the nature of God is life, which includes light. I want to talk a little bit more about that. Light reveals, darkness conceals. This is kind of the way we would normally look at it. When we lit up the room, we can see everything. When the room is dark, you can't see anything. You can't see what's there. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, he says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. Then shall every man have praise of God. I mean, this is his word. This is him speaking. I'm mean, not just James bringing it. I'm trying to bring out what I believe is written here. God is saying that he's going to bring to light the hidden things of darkness, the things that are concealed. You know, each one of us have a personal life, don't we? Each one of us have a hidden life, things about us that nobody knows. Things probably, maybe in this whole entire room, that we don't want anybody to know. If we were able to look through the, the chapters of every part of your life and look for the juicy pieces. I was telling Troy yesterday as we were working, I said, I, I can tell. Now you can say again, you got dirt on your pastor because I was down in the trench doing some plumbing. Anyway. We have dirt on our life, and people know about it, you know about it, and where you're conscious of it. There's also that some, we're sometimes trying to proclaim. Listen to me carefully on this thought. We're trying to say, I believe what God said. I'm not guilty. Like Jesus has washed that away. It's over with. But somehow, profoundly, there's still something remaining of this sense of guilt. Why is that? I think a lot of times the reason there's this remaining guilt is because there really isn't that transaction with God yet. See, we want to believe it's happened, but in many ways, for most of us or many of us, that actually hasn't taken place. And the guilt remains because it's an evidence of something that's not yet buried. And you've got to begin to explore and walk that path with God till you find out. But one thing I believe is this. I think that we're looking at darkness in the wrong light. What is the design of darkness? As I spent some time meditating about this, I was thinking about you know, we think of darkness as the whole design behind it is hiding. I thought about something else. The people who live in darkness, I think they're preserving. I think they're preserving something. Because if you read our verse in chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, it says, men love darkness. How in the world do you love darkness? Everything about darkness is its own form of entrapping you and ruining you. Why would you love darkness rather than light? Because there's something in that darkness that's being preserved. Something that we're holding on to. Something that we get out of living in darkness. Interestingly, the Bible talks about Moses that he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. Notice it said the pleasures of sin for a season. There is pleasure in darkness. And because of that pleasure or that opportunity to live and gratify self and the desires that go along with that, it means that I have to preserve it. And in order to preserve it, I have to be outside of the light. You have to understand 
that darkness has to be outside of the light in order to stay dark. And so some of us need to confront things in our life that's still in the dark. They're still there in the dark. Christians need to experience that and confront what's in the dark. So the motive behind living in darkness is keep the light from gaining authority. Let's reread this scripture one more time. And this is condemnation. That light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. It's not because there wasn't light there. It's because even in the presence of light, there's a heart disposition toward darkness. And because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Did you hear that part? There's a part of being exposed. How many of you like that piece of being exposed? I remember one time I got, I was, I hate to admit this, but it was long enough ago that it doesn't stain me for the moment, I guess. But I was, I was driving when I lived in Walla Walla. That's at least 14 years ago, folks. So <laughs> I was... I was driving and I, I, my license wasn't up to date. I guess my tabs weren't up to date. I didn't have the right mirror or the left, the driver's side mirror on my pickup, if I remember right. And uh, I didn't have insurance at the time. Um, and so the cop stopped me and um, he gave me a ticket. You know what I felt like in that moment? I felt like I was the last person on earth that wanted that exposure. Every car that drove by made me feel more humiliated. By, but I'll tell you what that exposure did for me. It made me wake up. It woke me up. I needed an exposure because this is what James was already in the framework in his mind to do. And that was simply this. As long as I wasn't going to get caught. How many of you drive the speed limit when it says 55? Right. As long as I don't get caught, I don't feel the sense of shame. I don't feel like there's anything bad about what I'm doing. But the truth is, in many of our situations in life, there is something bad. There really is something grievous. We just aren't getting caught or it's not coming to exposure. And we don't feel grieved by it. But what I find interestingly is when the right person shows up, all of a sudden, changes are being made. You know, how many of you go down the road and every car that drives by doesn't change a thing, but all of a sudden the cop looks and the first thing you do is look at your speedometer, right? First thing you do. It's like there's this sense of, I know where exposure comes from. But we have to be friends to exposure. Did you hear that? You have to be intimate friends with exposure if you want to walk with God. You want to let Him expose you and bring the light in. Interestingly, because if you're preserving an interest toward the light of God, you're saying to God, just like it's the psalmist says, Lord, search me, try me, see if there be any wicked way in me, and then lead me in the way of everlasting. Now that's boldness. That's a beautiful boldness that belongs to the people of God. So in one sense, we want to say this. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run into it and is safe. But I won't be exposed. I refuse exposure, but I do accept safety. You see where we're missing it? We're completely 
going around and navigating the ways of God in order to find places of rest and hope. And so we want to take like the scripture in Zechariah and say that there's going to be a, a love that brings rest with it. But we refuse to let God to do the exposing to actually give us the full rest that comes with. How many of you liked what I just said there? Good word, huh? So here I want to give you a little definition, uh, pastor's definition of darkness here. Darkness is a known area of life in which one is conscious of wrong. And they have developed habits and patterns that cultivate it. And in so doing, have developed a like resistance to what is good and right, slash the light. How many of you would like me to read that one more time? Okay, we got it coming to you. So if, if any of you say, hey, I want that, you're like, That's, I'm never going to get that all written down. I, I got notes and I can email it to you or whatever. I just want to know if you're like, I want, I want more here. Brother did do that and I gave it to him a while back. Darkness is a known area of life in which, in which one is conscious of wrong and they have developed habits and patterns that cultivate it. And in so doing, have developed a like resistance to what is good and right, the light. See, you can't just develop patterns of darkness and remain a friend to the light of God. You can't have a unique relationship near to God and have patterns in life that are directly in opposition to Him. So you are one or the other. And I think that explains why in many places in the Bible, but one of them is 1 John where he says, he that says um, he loves God and hates his brother is a liar, right? Is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Truth is not in him. We see places like that where it, it, it just gives a stark contrast between one and the other. What's it also say? Uh, I'm going to get it here in a minute. Love not the world, neither the things of the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This, once you get caught in the love of the world, you become entrapped and it snares you from the love of God. So I want to give an example of bondage that comes out of this. Listen to this carefully. The bondage that results are the natural and necessary sufferings. Please catch that piece. I even underlined it here in the notes. That conflict with the nature of God. And even though such suffering conflicts with the self-preserving nature of man, still the will and the heart are committed to the pride of darkness. See, there's, there's this, this piece in us that says, I don't want to suffer. But there's a bigger piece in us that says, I would rather have power over well-being. So this is what I wrote, pride over well-being. There's a piece to us that's so committed to our pride that we'll be more married to pride than we will to our own well-being. And that's why you see world, a world of people who are suffering immensely from sin, that are still not moved by the gospel. Because there's a pride 
that's being confronted. There's an exposure that's happening. And when we get exposed, we want to say, no, that's not your place. That's not your right. I remember in high school when I would say things in, in the locker room with the guys. And believe me, there was a lot of evil that happened in that locker room with teenage guys. And it was some of the things they said, and I exposed some of it. And I remember the moment that exposure came out, man, did I get a blast. It was tough going. I even had kids that would, I remember one of him, one of them, his name was Luke. I don't remember the last name in the moment, but he even said he wanted, he, he wanted to get in a fight with me. I remember one time I actually cut the wire to the music that was, no, I didn't cut the wire. I prayed to God about it. I just pulled the plug on, on the music because I was so sick of it in the class. And they would plug it back in and I'd unplug it. The next day after praying about it, like, Lord, it's already becoming an issue. What ended up happening was simply this. Somebody had dropped a weight on it. It wasn't me. And it cut the cord and they couldn't listen to the music anymore. But I remember going in there and there was two kids that looked me in the face. One of them was supposed to be a Christian kid and the other one had a Christian mother. He was. They were associated... Let me tell you this. It wasn't the world that was so frustrated with me. It was the compromised Christian that was frustrated with me. Because there's a higher call for them and they're rejecting it. And in order to reject it, they have to have a greater severity and resistance against the light of God in their life. Man, I'm saying a few things I'm even surprised by right in the moment. So again, look, write this verse down, 1 John chapter 2, 15-16. Pride over well-being. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not him, in him. Listen, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. One other scripture I want to take you to, and this is Jesus speaking here in uh, John chapter 8, verses 42 through 42, 44. 42 through 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. Again, chapter, John chapter 8, verses 42 through 44. I proceed forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself. But he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father, you, will, you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of it. Now, I suppose that some of you are still sitting there thinking, when is he going to talk about the spirit of life? I think I'm getting into it into a degree. Because as the Holy Spirit confronts darkness, he actually automatically moves you to a point of life. See, death is life for the Christian. This is the, when the paradox of the Christian life is in order to have life, there has to be death. The greater rule of selfishness is not happiness but to have power. I want power. I want an authority. I want to have a rule over the way. I want to choose for myself. I want to chart my own course. So here's a thought. Beware of pragmatism. The idea 
So pragmatism, it, the basis of the idea that whatever ends in my favor itself is intrinsically good by nature. Whatever ends in my favor is intrinsically good by nature. Well, you know, the guy that just committed the worst of crimes still thinks that way too. And so if he can get out of prison and jail and all that, he still thinks that this is intrinsically good that it ends in his favor. The idea of pragmatism is simply this. We want to be careful for it in the Christian life because what we're not really looking for is, first of all, what ends in my favor. Where am I going with this? But it ends in... I think I heard it. God's favor, right? It's not what ends in my favor, but what ends in His favor. There's a lot of suffering that Christians will receive because in their suffering, God will be favored through it. God will be worshipped and honored. So I want to say this, the false conversion, the dictator doesn't die. The dictator, the person who lives inside of me that wants to live for himself. So I want to now talk a little bit more about the Holy Spirit giving life and light. The Holy Spirit gives life, light. Existence versus design. So when we think of life, what are we thinking about? We're thinking about existence. You know, that they exist or they have life. So we talk about pro-choice because that's how babies have life. There's life given. They have existence. They have an opportunity to exist. But the Holy Spirit, when it comes to life, is more about design than existence. Because, see, we are, we are still dead in sin, yet we still exist. That's not life. You still get to make the choices and you have free choice in sin. That's existence, but that's not life. So when we talk about the abundant life and Jesus came to give life and that more abundant, we talk about that as the name of the church. We're talking about this is not merely existence. This isn't just a name on a sign. This is deeper than that. This is purpose. This was designed. Why are you here? Why are you created? Why do you have life? Why are you breathing when others are not? Why didn't you get cancer when somebody else did? We can't answer a lot of those questions, but we can say this. There is design. There is purpose. And that's where life exists. Once you know the design, once you know the purpose, then it's a matter of whether you are in connection and union with that design. The Holy Spirit takes over the ruling preference of your heart. That's where life is. I now don't have this ruling preference to live for myself. There's three areas that I want to share with you about this ruling preference. The one area is the part of you that wants to manage, run, and control power. The second one, the piece of you that
Now, are we on again? Good, good. You know, a little bit there, that helps. I felt exposed there for a minute. <laughs> the Holy Spirit gives life this, this existence, this design. So packed in are these three pieces to the ruling preference of the heart. So the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian as well as a non-believer is trying to overthrow this attitude, not that you don't have control or manage something, but that it's under His authority. It's not that you just always are right. It's the idea of that God is right. And the portion of your life that's dedicated to His interest. This is how the Holy Spirit begins to take place of these controlling areas of life. And the Holy Spirit takes this away. Not, and so I would say the Holy Spirit is taking it away. So I'd call this the cleanup phase. So we have the destruction phase. And you're like, is the cleanup phase going to be as long as the destruction phase? Not in the sermon. Maybe in reality it might be. I don't know. But, you know, when, whenever we did a project doing um, landscaping or we were on a, a job site, there was a destruction phase a lot of times, and then there was a cleanup phase. And it looked like we were making more of a mess to start with than what we had be- began with. You know, you have this structure, and after it's all torn down, it's scattered everywhere. And I wonder if that's what life looks like when God's getting a hold of you. So now there's this cleanup phase, and it's the Holy Spirit, after he's destroyed something, he cleans it up. And I believe this is immediate and continued. So there's something that's happened now, and it's powerful, and there's something continued. I remember uh, just listening to a pastor share about a friend of his that the Holy Spirit had gotten a hold of, and it was such a powerful move of God on him that he was fell to the ground. God was dealing with him while he was on the ground, and he got up. And when he got up, the friend he came to him and he said, What has God done for you? What did God give to you? What did God give to you? And the guy made this statement. He says, it's not what God gave. It's what God took away. How many of you know how real that is? There's some amazing things about what God takes away. We want him to take some things. So that was the cleanup piece of this. So why is it so slow? Why do we have such a slow progress when it comes to the cleanup phase of what God's doing? And I would just say one thing. You know, there's a lot of things that can go with it. But I'd say because we need accountability. Because we need accountability. We need somebody to look us in the eye and check us, check to see where we're at, how we're doing. We need more than just a settlement of somebody saying, hey, how are you doing? You say, I'm fine, and then walk away from there. We need to actually get a, a whole lot more deeper with each other. I need you to do it for me. Pastor, to live the way God wants him to, he needs people of accountability. So we talked about life-giving friends. Well, we need accountability. We need accountability with God. We need accountability with one another. And the further you're running from accountability, listen to me. If you don't have any accountability in your life, you've probably got darkness, right? There's probably some things that you're like, once the accountability starts, then I don't want to deal with all that stuff. I don't know. The Holy Spirit gives. So we have this cleanup phase. We need the accountability, the layer of people on our life that's going to ask us. See, this is the thing. When I think of accountability, I think of this. I'm going in a certain direction because this, this is the way I want to go. But if somebody asks me, is that the way you're supposed to go? Probably a lot of times, I'm going to give, if I'm given an honest answer, I'm going to say, no. No, that's not the way I'm supposed to go. See, the difference between accountability and friendship is this. Accountability will help you grow. Friendship will just give you somebody to be there in the moment. And sometimes friends will be those that will keep you accountable, but sometimes they won't. 
I believe the Holy Spirit wants people to help us in this area. I believe He wants you to keep people accountable as well as for yourself. There's a lot of layers of accountability even that I put on my own life, but I don't feel like, essentially, I don't trust myself. I don't think you should. I think you should just learn to let... Because this is the thing. I've said this a few times. What are you going to be in your time of weakness? What are you going to be in the time when temptation is at the point when you're too weak to resist it? If you don't have a layer of protection on top of you in that moment, you're going to give in. That's the difference a lot of times. We need a layer to help us through this. So this is why it's so slow. The reason it's so slow is because we have no layers of accountability or very little in our life. And as a result of that, this is what happens. On Sunday morning, you hear a good message. You're moved by it. You're encouraged by it. And maybe you move with a little bit of conviction in your life and letting God have His place in repentance for a week. And then it goes back to the way it was before. And then we've had this backsliding constantly, if even that. And the issue there is this, is that we never really grow in grace and stay in grace We keep falling away from the grace of God. And we need this grace to move us forward and elevate us to the place of surrendered obedience to Jesus and stay there. So there's just not the accountability to help us along that path. Even though you have the Holy Spirit, you ignore the Holy Spirit because you won't even let somebody help you be accountable. I mean, I would say this, if you're totally open to God doing it, then why in the world would you have a problem with a man doing it? Or a woman, right? Okay, so the repent. Um, We're going to go to Acts chapter 3, verse 19. So this is the Holy Spirit gives. So we had the Holy Spirit takes away, the Holy Spirit destroys, the Holy Spirit takes away, and the Holy Spirit gives. This is the rebuild phase. So he's cleaned up, now he's rebuilding. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, the one that I had right up there, so if you're not sure, just look up there at the screen. Um, go ahead and turn there. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. This is beautiful. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What's it say? So that the times of refreshing can come from the presence of the Lord. Why are we going through this? What is the idea that God has so He can bring us into His presence safely? You know, back in, back in the Old Testament, they would tie a rope to the priests, and when they went into the Holy of Holies, if the presence of God had slain them, they had a way of pulling them out without themselves going in and dying because of the impurity. So there's something holy about the presence of God that destroys impurity. And so in order to bring us into the presence of God safely, We have to have this experience with God. And so we have here uh, just this thought. What do we mean by life? I'm going to share a few things with you when we're talking about life. Life is a freedom and responsibility with a new heart. Freedom and responsibility with a new heart. Freedom is the motive of godliness. Now when I say freedom, I'm talking about the fact that it's not that I have freedom to do whatever I want. I'm talking about freedom as this is my heart's preference and choice going into. So it's a voluntary thing. Not like a voluntary labor, but voluntary, this is committed desire of my heart. So I'm talking about that voluntary is what purity is all about. Listen to that. Purity is all about being voluntary. There is 
There can be no ethics, right or wrong, or true goodness without this kind of freedom. Without this kind of freedom, there couldn't even exist. Ethics wouldn't be. Why wouldn't it exist? Because when we talk about love, love has to be voluntary. Goodness has to be decided upon. Not only is it right, but I have to have chosen it of my own voluntary will. I can't have just been forced into it. It can't be a compulsion. That's what makes it beautiful and honorable, is that it's a part of this freedom that's in there. So freedom defines godliness. It's not just an act of, we just do the outward performance, it's good enough just because I did it outwardly. It's because inwardly I'm conformed to this newness in life inside of me. So then we get our ethics and our sense of right and wrong from this. But see, freedom itself isn't where life is. Because freedom of itself also gives us the capacity to do anything we want just because we want. And so freedom itself is destructive just on human nature alone without something more regenerational in God and God at work. So we have the freedom and the responsibility. We have responsibility added. You know this, that you can't look at humanity and not see there's a responsibility, a moral responsibility that we know we're obligated to whether we're living it out or not. It's kind of like paying your bills. You know you got bills to pay and whether you pay them or not, you still have a bill to pay. You know that you have to do something with it. Freedom, uh, f- let's see, responsibility is a gift of life. It helps us define purpose and reason for existence. So you have freedom that doesn't do that, but responsibility does. Why do I exist? What is my importance? A sense of responsibility helps give us an understanding for that. By itself, it would just demand us to perform life without obligation or to live without uh, live out of obligation. Duty that is demand without calling us to voluntary virtues that go with it. So responsibility was supposed to have freedom, voluntary choice to go with it. That's what makes the Christian life so amazing, is that it's not forcing you to become, you get to choose. You get to choose whether you want God in your heart or not. And lastly, a new heart places God at the head of our freedom and responsibility, so that free will remains consistent and in harmony with the will of God. Did you guys catch that? A new heart places God at the head of our freedom and responsibility. See, freedom and responsibility would be worthless if you didn't put God at the head of it. So that free will, or our free will, remains consistent and in harmony with the will of God. See, what's interesting here is a lot of times we we place the obligation of obedience to God as an obligation, and it sure is. But obligation should be married to your heart's affection and desire. And so that's what makes Christian life and obedience really the proper thing, is that now I'm obeying because I love and I'm committed to Him. See, this is where we, we, we grow out of. And so what happens is this. We call it legalism for this one reason. Legalism is this. I'm doing it because I have to. It is somebody's got to do it. I need to do it. Whatever. But I'm not married to this. I'm not married. And when we get to that point, this is the thing. We just made obedience a form of legalism. So 
what I've loved is Joseph has been great in sharing that this morning is there's some guys on his list. Now, that was something that came to his mind and his heart. And as the Lord brings them into his path, he just ministers to them, right? But, you know, he's not doing that because somebody told him, here's the program, here's what you need to do, here's how you get godly, right? He did that because he felt moved and and touched by God to do so. And I want to say the same thing for us. If we're going to move in the area of obedience, it's not just because it says it in the Bible. And I want to say that carefully, but it's not just because it says it in the Bible. It's because you're married to the author. You're unified and near to him. And because of that, it's going to check you at the points of, how many times have you like, Lord, I'm going through the motions. And God's like, that's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. And, and, and we, we write it off as, well, at least, I, at least I obeyed. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. And we know it's an act of our will because obedience is sometimes something without the emotion. It's not the emotion or the desire that drives it. It's the commitment of your heart to him who commanded it. So I'm not going to go any further with that. I'm going to leave it there because I feel like I've well preached that piece of it. I'm, trying to pray, I'm praying that these layers of things will help us understand what God has actually designed us for and wanted us to be a part of. So I want to give you guys an opportunity to respond to the Lord. I've taken some time to think about two areas that I would like for you to consider in your time with the Lord this morning, and that is, is God putting his finger in a point of darkness? Has there been something that you've been thinking about while I've been sharing that, and you're like, God's been putting his finger on it? And lastly, do you have accountability? Do you have it? Do you have what you know you need for accountability? You have a few people that might here and there, but do you have what you need? And if not, I want you to take some time before the Lord this morning. We're going to open up the altar to you as we uh, let the worship team come. If you would, um, the worship team would come up.